What's going on, guys? It's Chris Mead back for another episode of My Biggest Lessons. I got my boy Rob Fraser on, founder and CEO of Outway. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. Doing well. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing good, dude. Thanks so much. Well, I've been a, a big fan of yours from afar. This is actually the first time we've ever sat down to chat. But uh, first, just tell everyone out there listening, like, what is Outway? I was on the site earlier today, like, honestly, some of the sickest socks I've ever seen in my life. Like, how did it happen? How long have you been doing it? And give people just a little bit of insight into how the business is going. Yeah, sure. I'll try to condense this. I'm, I'm generally um, a rambler, so I'll do it. I'll do my best. But in what I call my past life, I was a, a professional mountain biker. And in cycling, socks are culture. The, the way we generally express ourselves, we kind of differentiate. We're all given like team kits. So generally in a crowd, we all look the same. But socks were often this piece of apparel that weren't provided. We can kind of spice it up a little bit. And then when I transitioned out of sport, I would still wear my kind of like old cycling socks to school or at the gym or whatever. And was actually before starting a sock company known as like the sock guy. But what I quickly realized was that like the cycling socks were pretty shitty for just all day use. They were great for obviously when you're on a bike, but they were mm -hmm. not, not a lot of cushioning and they fell down when running or whatever. So I started looking on the market. I was like, okay, I want to wear fun, bold socks. It's like my personality now, but I want something that's like Lululemon-esque. I want something that's like a yoga pant for the foot. I was like, I want that, that piece of apparel that can go with me throughout the day. And so when I scanned the market, I was just underwhelmed with kind of what was out there. It was still really sport specific socks, like a basketball sock, football, etc. Or all the bold fun socks were like dress socks, which were just utter okay. shit. They were just like cotton, they would fall down. Of course. And so I was like, yeah, just like they fall down, your pant leg rises up and you have that like leg cleavage, which is just a bad look. Mm -hmm. Surely there's a better way to do this. And when I looked at the market as like socks had been left behind in the athleisure movement. So I was like, okay, there's a great way to kind of bring that and build a sock company that is for the everyday athlete. And we just wanted to basically combine technical design, beautiful design. So we wanted something highly innovative and technical and functional on the product side, and then combine it with bold, expressive designs that people could go out and kind of showcase their personality. So that was the general idea. And so today, that way is six years old. And we've been in the market throughout North America that time and kind of slowly scaled up. I didn't know anything about business when starting. So I just was trying to solve my own problem, scratch my own itch. Yeah. And then kind of like stumbling along and failing forward, basically trying new things and bootstrapped the brand. I put in a thousand dollars with school loans and then we've surpassed eight figures in revenue now off that bootstrap, that original thousand dollars and just kind of current day. We've just gone through our so rebrand and uh, our team's over 20 people. And yeah, things are, we're just continually still focused on performance socks and just socks for That's all amazing, day. Bro. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. It's fun. My whole thing was avoiding getting a real job. Yeah. So like still doing it, still avoiding real life. And, uh, <laughs> still alive. And no, I love still, it. Still doing it. Yeah. So that's kind of the That's thing. amazing. Yeah. That, that's super impressive. So, so let me ask you then, right? So I grew up super frugal, food stamp type of kid. How the hell do you get people to buy $15, $20 socks on the internet that they can't feel? How does that work? Talk me through that because that's got to be a pain. That's probably the number one pain point, I would assume, is like, how do I convince somebody to buy a $15 sock when they may or may not already have socks in their drawer? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And honestly, I've, I've been on a, quite a few podcasts now. No one's actually ever asked that. So it's clear that you're a founder that's probably had to try to tell, explain something over the internet. But really, it started boots on ground. Like my first order of socks, I literally took in a Tupperware to school and just sold individual pairs to people like classmates and teachers. From there, I expanded outwards into going to like local events. Again, socks on people's feet. We made an incredibly a great product. I knew like the number one marketing channel for us would be socks on feet. 
right? So how, like, how can we get more products on people's feet? Because we knew that if that was the case, socks have a high repeat purchase rate. They wear out. There's constantly new designs. So it's always fun and exciting to buy. We needed to get that first pair. It was really a feature of spending two years just going to different events, popping up on different places and just getting socks on people's feet. Enough so that there was enough of an organic virality that could start. Reviews could pour in. We could hear that customer feedback and take literally the words that they're telling us and then use those to explain to potential customers online. But ultimately, like if you don't have the luxury of maybe going on site or if your product's big or whatever, often I think like it's really important to step outside of your brand and just ask yourselves, what's the problem that we're solving? How can I speak in layman terms? Because us as operators, we know the nitty gritty of it. We tend to speak a little more technical usually. And we mm-hmm. think everyone knows as much about the product as we do. But the reality yeah. is they don't give a shit about socks as much as I do, right? So I really just wanted to talk to, focus on the niche audience. So I wanted to focus on people that were cyclists, runners, adventurers are going to the gym and then tell that story of how that pair of socks can transcend and go with them throughout the day and just kind of talk to the main points that it would, it would solve. Like, hey, these aren't going to fall down. That's an annoying thing. Everyone deals with their socks are falling down. Hey, they're going to breathe and not be super sweaty. They're not going to wear out as fast. And oh yeah, they look fucking awesome. So yeah. it's like just talking like simple terms, but I, I can't stress enough that it was super important in the early days just to get on site and literally sell them one by one to people and just get that customer feedback. I think it's so easy to be kind of excited about how easy digital marketing can be and just being like in a basement and sending things to e-commerce. But it's just, it just takes so long to build up that organic base to have the repeat purchases come in. And we're just talking about iOS 14, 15 hour, whatever we're at, but it's just getting really hard to acquire online, really expensive. And we're finding ourselves going back to these really basic concepts of just like popping up and doing even kind of experiential retail or working with influencers or, or just other ways to get in front of people. And ultimately, convincing someone to buy something online comes down to trust. So we just always ask ourselves, like, how can we establish trust in the, in the consumer's mind? Is it someone that they look up to? Is it the features, the reviews? So there's not like one silver bullet, but there's so many lessons you'll learn from actually interacting with your customers in the early days and learning how to speak to them. Like it's been something yeah. we focused on. No, that's a good point. And that actually is what you said about using their words and using them almost against them or against the future them. It's such a good point. Like I'll go through our reviews all the time. And it's not the way I talk about it because the whole thing is I'm designing my team to write the sexy buzzwords for retail packaging or do this. But like when the mom in Oklahoma with four kids and the fifth on the way is talking just like her shorthand slang, like that's what actually resonates with 99% of America. So going through your reviews, making sure like you're firing those review requests like frequently, getting getting it back from the customers has been super important for us at CrossNet. So like even on your example, right? Like that specific use case, especially when targeting was a bit easier, but like the story you would want to tell that mom is like, Hey, this game's going to keep your kids busy for a few hours so you can relax. There's the marketing pitch, right? Yeah. It's not about, Oh, it's built with this kind of net. And they don't, she doesn't give a shit about that. She wants to know, Hey, how can I get four hours to myself? Right. That's where you got to like step outside of the brand and be like, what problem are we actually solving? So if it's for a parent, it's, Oh, okay. They can relax a little bit while their kids tire themselves out. But yeah, as an aside, I think it's uh, a, that's a good example. So you said, are you guys going back to more trade shows, more kind of events like that since the iOS disaster or, because one thing I always think about, we started our company, I was telling you before we were recording, we moved to Miami. I sat on the beach, bro, six, eight hours a day, just hollering at girls and just random people like come play cross net and trying to sell them like a net on the beach and make my gas money for the night. A lot of the time I'm looking out from my tower right here. It's dude, I should be out there in the park. I should be back out on the beach doing the things that worked, but I got 20 people to manage, right? And I got to deliver Walmart orders next week. What comes first? Do you feel like you guys are kind of getting back to those grassroots or how are you thinking about it? 
Yeah, there's always like time and place, right? So at a certain scale, some things don't make sense anymore. But yeah. I think it's still super important to activate around those roots when possible, especially maybe in your local community. Now that we're like somewhat in a post-COVID world, and I swear I've been saying that for years, like we all have. So I feel almost stupid saying post-COVID. It's like, we're whatever, we're living with it or whatever. So now that events are coming back online, like it's important for us to meet our customers where they are and show that we're just a part of the culture. And luckily where we yeah. live, there's a lot of marathons and big bike races. And these are like two, 3,000 person events. So that's the scale we're looking at because what we can do also, which is unique in how we scale in the early days without any money to really spend on ads or acquisition, is we would partner with these events, give socks to every participant that signed up. So if you signed up for the local marathon in your welcome bag, you got a pair of our socks on the back of the packaging at a promo code, you could go buy more. And that was kind of the early hack of like, how do we get socks on feet? Especially for you, it's probably like, how do we get more people playing the game? They're going to have so much fun. They're going to talk about it and more people are going to buy it. So that's like at its core level, like what we need socks on feet for us. So it's like, how can we do that? And the benefit there is that normally it costs maybe say 10, 15 grand to sponsor an event like this. And so we partner with Red Bull, for example, for their Red Bull 400. Early days, that's great brand association for credibility and trust that we were talking about. Second to that, we get $15,000 in value, but our product cost only costs us half that or a third of that. So we get three times the in-kind value plus socks on people's feet. We didn't spend any money on Facebook or traditional advertising for like almost three years. And in the early days, we just partnered with events, showed up, popped up, did earn media and just got socks on feet. Like, I think there's a certain scale I think you do. Like maybe we don't go to the local 20 person running event, but I think it's super important to meet your customers where you are, whether or not that's even putting socks. We have a coffee shop that sells our socks in Quebec, because if you think about it, where does every kind of group ride or run stop or, or start? It's from a coffee shop. Right. And so that's actually ingraining yourself in the culture of the sport and showing up where the customer is. We're super interested about like, how do we pop up in areas where our customer is living their actual life and just kind of being there. Yeah, and that's, that's what's exciting. That's for every brand, man. I'm just thinking of all the people that have been on this podcast. We all have these little niches that like you don't think about when you started the company. For me, CrossFit's super popular in like Christian church camps. And that would have never been like, I wouldn't start the company and be like, yeah, we're going to target churches. But like now that's a huge portion of our revenue is churches like looking for stuff to do and keep the kids occupied for four hours. So Yeah, and I think that's super important too. Like I always say to like young founders is like one of the most important things you can do in business in the early days is stay alive. Because what you're doing won't make sense for a while, but at a certain point, you'll have enough hindsight, like your Christian example. It's, oh, okay, that's a channel I could have never forecasted, but now we know we can go deep on it. What other lessons can we uncover and go deep in? So I'm a big fan of staying focused, but not putting too much pressure on yourself and being super patient because one, two years in, you can finally look backwards. You haven't muddied up your data by doing growth hacks or stupid shit in the early days, hopefully. And then you can actually say, who are our customers? How do we double down and get more socks on people's feet or cross net games into different camps? Exactly. Etc. So I think it's like a super important point just to stay patient 100%. and stay alive. Yeah. Well, go, going off of staying focused, right? Like, obviously, you have access to amazing manufacturing. You guys are talented as hell, like creating beautiful designs. You've had to have at least been tempted with like making t shirts, making leggings, making joggers. Is that mm-hmm. coming into the future? Talk about that, like temptation with the devil, right? Like, I want to make a ton of different games. I'm finally getting to do that five years later. Yeah. There's got to be some temptation there. For sure. And I think you can always ask yourself, like, where's scale going to come from, right? And then an apparel business, it's easy to think that comes from just adding different line items. We've dabbled. I'm not going to lie, because like over the past five years, we've tried different things that haven't worked. Ultimately, what it came down to is you always have to ask yourself, is adding this second item a value add to the customer experience? And then B, does it put us in a new lane of competition? So for example, 
performance socks where we're kind of being the athleisure leader of performance socks is there was a quite obvious white white space there and it's also a multi-billion dollar industry so i asked myself have we capitalized on this opportunity to the fullest of our extent with our focus where we could maybe go into other product categories but when we looked at our position in the sock space we're like we're actually close to leading this in north america we could introduce for example the natural kind of evolution would be underwear right and so if we're going to work on underwear now, there's A, a different buying psychology in the consumer's mind. We've learned that the hard way. And B, there's a ton of underwear competition. You think Saks, Tommy John, all of these other competitors, which is not right now our circle of competence. And they're not mm-hmm. tightly combined. Like people that are buying socks aren't always buying underwear, where the same might not be true in the games. Like you might want to have multiple games. And I don't know your business as well as you do. But for us, we looked at ourselves as like, how can we be part of the athletic person's kit? And so if we look at a person, they generally have about seven brands that they love, right? And so when I looked at someone at a cycling event or a running event or at the gym, I was like, what are they wearing? Maybe Lululemon, they're wearing maybe an Apple Watch, they're wearing Nike shoes. How do we just be outweigh socks? That's all I want to focus on. And I want to be that person, especially as we look into the future is what is the exit outcome of this business? Is it acquisition? Is it going public? Generally speaking, if we stay super focused on stock, it's probably acquisition. So how do we plug and play into an apparel company that might be looking to add an eight, nine figure sock brand to their line? Maybe they're going public, right? So that's how I think about focus is like, A, is there a value add to our current consumer? And, and yes, there is. So we dabble with accessories like caps and sunglasses and stuff, because those are also unisex expressive items that are in the apparel category, but still not really. And then B, does it enter you into a new lane of competition that's going to A, mess up, like really muddy up your messaging when it's really important to focus on, be clear what you're doing. And then mm-hmm. B, just kind of maybe sink some dollars. And then there's all the complexities you scaling up different supply chains and, and retail yeah. and, and all that stuff with new product categories. And I've learned that lesson the hard way too. I always thought like, Early days, I was like, well, they can, this manufacturer can make socks. Surely they can make underwear. That's just not the case. Yeah. There's a knitting factory yeah. and cut and sew factory. And so, not to say we're not going to go into different categories, but I'm always a fan of like, have we done as much as we can in our current one? Are we yeah. capitalizing an opportunity in front of us? And is the second category a real value add? So, we are working on stuff to be announced, but I am a fan of a focus, especially in multi billion dollar industries. Makes sense. And speaking of staying focused and also like getting the most out of one industry, there's a lot of damn socks on that website, right? I'm not a performance marketer by any means, but like I'm sure a lot of people listening, either they're launching a company that has a ton of different SKUs or they have a ton of different varieties, right? Like when it comes to like actually running the ads on a day to day, I'm just genuinely curious. You don't have to like go too deep into it. Are you running ads for each and every sock in each and different color? Or is it more like here's hero socks that you found one ad that works really well to get them there and then let them explore? Like, how does that work? Especially like on a drop, right? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And we learned this lesson by again, being on site with people in the early days, we would have an expo event, we'd have let's say 50 different socks showing. We literally have people that come up and they're like, I want to buy some, but I can't make a decision. So I'm going to leave. They literally had decision, like decision paralysis. They were of just course. like, so Happens overwhelmed. All the time. Yeah, they were so overwhelmed, even though they wanted to convert. And so I was like, well, how do we limit the amount of options? So there's ways that you can do that. So to your original question on ads, we're usually identifying like our top 10 selling products and using those as kind of the peacock, right? Like we're putting them in as the hero products you said, going to a landing page that shows those and then let the customer filter down from there, this concept of like macro to micro, how can we show them everything, but give them all the tools to narrow it down as simple as they want. So what height do you like? What designs do you like? What cushioning do you like? And by applying all these filter layers, you can get down from a 200 pair collection to 20. And then it becomes much more digestible. But 
top of funnel, we're generally showing a little bit of everything, the tried and true. And one thing we're rolling out, but probably be out by the time this episode airs, is like a quiz feature, which is more of like custom curation. It's just going to auto-apply filters, but gamify it a little bit because 200 pairs is a lot. And that's it's too many yeah. to go through. Even I get overwhelmed. I know every one, right? So it's, I think, yeah, it's important to like focus on what works and not show... You try to sell everything or try to sell everything to everyone, you sell nothing, right? So you really have to stay niche. So like I said earlier, like we focus on cycling, running, training, and adventure, which by virtue does expand to everyone, but keeps our message succinct. Because if you think of all other sports, those are the core sports that they use to cross train. The opposite is not true. A runner doesn't do football to cross train. So like by focusing and staying niche, we can have a broader message, but still stay true to kind of like our core market. So a lot in there, but the, the overarching answer is like, yeah, we try to focus on what we know works and then filter down yeah, from yeah. there. Yeah. Makes sense. That's good. That's a good point for anyone listening. Running up on time. I want to know just straight up your biggest lesson. I know you're, you've been dealing with some stuff, a rebrand over the last few months. It's probably been months at this point. Talk yeah. me through that. Things you wish you would have done differently. Yeah, there's been like two lessons. So we're like in our sixth year, five years. So early days, like starting the business, it was just for fun. I was in school. I was trying to like, set up before the call, like avoid getting a real job, right? Yeah. So successfully still avoiding it. But I started it with a friend in college. We didn't do a shareholder agreement. We didn't have an understanding of where the business would go. And so ultimately, you can probably understand where this is going. He unfortunately wasn't very entrepreneurial. There's a misalignment in values around what hard work was and you know where we wanted to take the business. And a year and a half in, over a million bucks in revenue at that point, and he quits. And there's no share vesting. There's no way to claw back that. That was a moment where not having mechanisms that are simple in a shareholder agreement was almost something that brought the company down. Because like yeah. egos come up and it got super so like that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I meant is like in the formation of the company in my gut I knew that going to see a lawyer was the smart thing but it's that honeymoon phase it's, we're different it's not we're not going to be yeah. like everyone else so I say that was the first thing so I had to basically get like a personal loan for one hundred fifty thousand dollars buy them out I was already in debt as in the early days of starting a company that's bootstrapped you don't have any money right like I didn't have yeah, like two nickels to rub together so but that was the first time where I was like okay I'm betting on myself like I'm putting one hundred fifty k in now and I gotta go for it so it was the right choice because you know in that two years to the point we made a million bucks and the, the next couple of years after we made you know nine million so it was the right choice and then current day yeah the rebrand was another thing like it all generally comes down to not doing as much legal diligence as we should in the early days and this is something i've identified when to solve it like a future me is kind of like the entrepreneur resource gap but like that time you're out of school and the time before you've made it or have some money, like there's a lot of things you don't have access to or can't afford that get into a lot of problems as a founder. And generally it's around legal and accounting <laughs> for the most part. Everything else is yeah. you can figure it out. But, uh, you know, we're going through a rebrand. Like given the, the nature of the circumstances, I can't talk about too much of the intricacies, but really we are faced with a moment and the only pathway forward was us to rename our company. And this was like, we got this notice in advance of Black Friday. So we were simultaneously working on a rebrand over the last six months while also going through Black Friday and Christmas and the new year. And we were closing a financing round and it was just this hectic thing. So I'd say like the overarching lesson I think has been listen to your gut, seek advice and maybe spend the 5k on legal advice at those critical moments. Because I always say like $5,000 is more like five million when you're an early founder. It's, it's like the most money in the world. But of course, that five that five thousand dollars cost me one hundred fifty thousand dollars two years later, and then the other five thousand that we should have spent on other things. This rebrand cost is like quarter million dollars, right? So it's not cheap. It's very taxing. These things can be avoided, but at the same time, like you don't know what you don't know, and you learn these lessons. Exactly. Hopefully, someone listening to this can take that advice. And I, I try to say that story. I say, like, pay the money up front, listen to your gut and just really kind of set yourself up for success. I think a lot of people start businesses 
they're like, this is fine. It works. And often people will ask themselves, what happens if this goes wrong? And they'll hedge for downside. But you can get yourself in just as much trouble when asking yourself, what if this goes right? Right? Because if this really mm-hmm. scales, do I have the right partner? Do I have the right legal diligence, trademarks, et cetera? Do I have the right infrastructure? Like, how do I capture this opportunity? There's nothing worse than you're crushing it and you didn't set yourself up for success because that's almost just, that would be harder than just failing, right? Because you, yeah. you, you knew what you could have. And so I'd say everything, everything has been me being a little too hard headed and I'm still hard headed and we have to be. It's like in our nature yeah. as entrepreneurs, but I do try to pause now and ask myself, I'm going to get all the advice and make the best call moving forward and just invest in and making sure we're making the right move. But everyone's going to do it. Like These mistakes, I yeah. think, are, are, are quite universal. And you're going to happen. I think your ability to be resilient through them is like really what builds the, the fun story. And uh, absolutely, I look back on them now as great learning experiences. But man, did they suck at the time. Oh, yeah. 100%. I think that when I met my new lawyer, so I've been working with this lawyer for like a year and a half because of similar shitty situations. He's, listen, cheap advice is very expensive. Right, and that, right. that's, that's something that's stuck with me for so long. Like we're definitely paying much more legal fees than we ever have in our life. But like the amount of protection we have with litigation and any of that, it's just a great feeling. And obviously it's much easier to say that now in my position than when I was living off unemployment, right? Trying to start mm-hmm. this company. But uh, yep. not taking the time to do things the right way. Even one horror story for me, like I think it's even, you probably find it interesting. And I've never shared this on this podcast at least. When you go to patent a game or patent anything, during that first year when you get approved for the patent is the only time where you could actually declare for that patent internationally. And we Mm. didn't know that back then. So we have patents here in the United States, but we can't patent the game in Europe anymore. We can't patent in Australia because we missed that one year mark. So like it is what it is. Like we have the brand and that's kind of our moat and our patent. So anything new that we're coming out is we patent it here and fuck yeah, we're patenting it everywhere else. And yeah, no kidding. God, we have the money for it now. It's interesting. Most people don't yeah. realize that. And those are the little intricacies that I think that could be solved by having some sort of resource for these entrepreneurs that are not school and not not making it. Because these are very simple things. But like, where do you go, right? Short exactly. of listening, to, I applaud what you're doing here at the podcast. But like, short of founders taking time out of their day to either meet with people or run a podcast or or write a blog post or whatever, yeah. this information's generally stuck in the community or stuck in the founder's mind. And I would love to find more scalable ways to get it out. Podcasts obviously can scale, but they're still hard to distribute and, and, and make sure people consume appropriately no, or whatever. But. Dude. That's why I try to do the newsletter. I try to do the podcast. We're 24 minutes into this, right? Like realistically, hopefully everyone listens to the final whistle, but like I know 99% of people may not get to the last second of this podcast to get that gem sure. and they just need that one piece of advice. What's the best way to delegate that? It's it's really tough. Yeah. It's like we're, I know we're on time, but it's like we've just like tip of the iceberg. I've got a million other horror stories. We shared some before the podcast. Yeah. Just the overarching thing is if you're finding a hard time in business, like just keep moving forward because that's normal and pat yourself on the back. Because if you're going through tough times, it means you're doing something. You know what I mean? If you find yourself in the sights of another brand, it's because you're doing something cool. Like you don't want to be not exciting with these other brands. So yeah, I don't know. It's been fun chatting. I feel like we could talk for probably a few hours no, about all, all the sure, horror bro. stories. But I got to get up to Canada soon. We'll do yeah, it again sure. for sure, dude. Well, yep. congrats on the rebrand, bro. Everyone check out Outway if you need some dope socks. I'm definitely going to be picking up a few. Really happy for coming on and thanks for making the time. Yeah, no worries. Everyone wants to check out just Outway.com. And yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Super fun. Beautiful. Talk soon. So that's another episode of My Biggest Lessons. Each and every week, I'll be having one of my favorite entrepreneurs come on, share their stories, their mistakes, the things they wish they knew. Entrepreneurship's a lonely road, right? You only learn by getting better. You only learn by making mistakes. So I want them to come on and share their stories. 
If you have somebody in mind that you want on, drop a comment, subscribe, share with a friend. Let's get the best people in the world on here. Thanks for listening.